Anybody else, feel free, please. Let me get up in my spot. Let's turn in our Bibles today, please, to Romans chapter 6. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. Romans 6 this morning. Some of you know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, which is maybe the only verse you might have memorized. Maybe you know some other things like 6 through 11 through 13 tells you how to walk with the Lord on the basis of your position in Christ. Well, today, as always lately, we're celebrating what we're calling the riches of God's grace. We're celebrating what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us by going to the cross for our sins paying for our sins on the cross, and as we just read from John 14, uh, paving the way for us to have eternal life. And in Romans 6, the grace that God has given us, again, just like last time, is our spiritual life. We saw it described for us in Galatians chapter 5, and today we'll see it in Romans 6. And there are different aspects and facets of your Christian spiritual life. The things we're talking about only apply to believers in Christ, They have nothing to do with someone that doesn't have Christ, that doesn't have the life that he alone can provide. And in this case, what we're celebrating today is death, the death that you've died in Christ, which is a very interesting thing. That's the theme of Romans 6 is you've died. There is a death, and that has certain implications. To get into Romans chapter 6 and do it right, we have to ask where did we, uh, what have we done so far in Romans to get to chapter 6? And it turns out Romans is a pretty simple outline. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul gets you good and dead. The conclusion of Romans chapters 1 through 3 is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That everybody, the person that's the moralist, the person that thinks he's keeping the Mosaic law, the person that's the reprobate, the profligate, all of us are sinners in need of a Savior and we cannot save ourselves. That's Romans, essentially Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 18 through the end of chapter 3. The prologue of Romans establishes what the ministry of the gospel is, and it is the power of God for salvation in Romans 1.16. So we get good and dead in Romans 1 through 3, and then 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5 explain how you receive eternal life. Romans 4 and 5 are sublime, and they're magnificent, And I know all of Scripture is, but it's such a fantastic place to reason through. You and I, as believers in Christ, have adopted the pattern of Abraham. Because in Genesis 15, 6, Paul argues that it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. And Abraham's faith that produces an imputation of God's righteousness is the model for how we receive a declaration to our account of God's righteousness. It isn't just that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We are creatures in need of God's righteousness so that we can have a relationship with Him. And receiving that righteousness is only on the basis of faith. It's justification, the declaration of God's righteousness to our account on the basis of faith in the pattern of Abraham. And that's not a satisfactory summary of Romans 4. But it is, uh, it is a, f- a kind of a summary. In chapter 5, there's more theology about how we're all stuck in Adam 
And so we all need the last Adam. That in Adam all have died, in Christ all will be made alive. And this is uh, very helpful because in chapters 1 through 3, everybody, everybody, even the guy in chapter 2 that's hunting after righteousness, he doesn't get it. He doesn't find it. He, he'll receive eternal life if he, if, he, you know, if he does everything perfectly, but he doesn't. No one does. And in chapter 4, the righteousness that we need comes by faith, and it's only by faith, and it's only in Christ. And in chapter 5, the rationale is that we need the last Adam because we were all in Adam. So we're, we're not sinners because we start sinning and get a habit for it. We do. But we're sinners because we're in Adam. We're born out of this condemned Adamic race. And because of our position in Adam, we need to receive the salvation that comes along uh, from Christ. So example, for example, in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed. It's not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many die, that's Adam, we are all in Adam. The many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So you've got Adam as the first man who killed us all, and Christ as the last Adam who saves us. And it's one for one. It's position in Adam is replaced with position in Christ. And that's part of Paul's reasoning. And so he gets you saved, if you will, in chapter 5. Converted, justified, declared righteous by faith alone in Christ. That's the beginning of new life for you, and this is why we celebrate it. It's the riches of divine grace. And we've seen there are dozens and dozens of things that Christ, that God, that through the Holy Spirit, God has done for us when we first trusted in Christ. And the thing we're celebrating today is that you as a believer have a spiritual life. You have a life that you can live and walk, and it's different from how you would live without this new life. And this spiritual life is volitional. You have to choose it. It is dependent. You have to trust in God. It is uh, relational. It's personal rapport with God. It's informational. You have to be in God's word to live this life. It's like the fuel that makes the thing run is the word of God. And, and all of these dynamics are true. But the thing we're focusing on today is the fact that if you've died with Christ, how should you then live? What should your life be like? The challenge of Romans 6 is, have I indeed died with Christ? Because the, the Bible says, if you've trusted in Christ, then you've been baptized into union with Christ. If you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit in union with Christ, then you are in Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension and glorification of the right hand of the Father. You and Christ are all of those things. And so, since you've died with Christ is the argument of Romans 6. And that's a great challenge for us because we all have. So what should our life be like if and since we have died in Christ? Romans 6, 1 starts with a fantastic question. There we go. Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what is Paul's answer? Uh, it is a theological uh-uh. It is no, absolutely not. And he says it in a very strong way. 
Continuing in sin so that grace would increase would be a possible question you might ask based on the fact that we received our life by a gift, that it's by God's grace and sin doesn't cancel the gift and we didn't do anything about our sin. Christ alone did something about our sin and it's God's grace when you measure our sin against God's gift. It's such an amazing gift that we'll never earn or deserve and that's grace. And so the theory is, well, if it's mathematically that the more sin that God forgives, the greater the grace, should we continue to sin because it makes God's grace even more uh, magnificent. And that is some ridiculous lawyering, Paul says, when he says, meganoita. May it never be that you would think that foolish thought is my paraphrase of that uh, Greek particle, meganoita. May it never be. Your Bible might translate God forbid. There's no word for God in meganoita. Just may it not be. And, and, the, and the, th- the sense in that idiom, is, may it not be that you would be so confused as to think that you would continue in sin that grace would increase. So we're moving in Romans from the truth of your position in Romans 4 and 5 to what you do with that truth in verse in chapter six through eight. What do I do with the fact that I am in Christ, that I am no longer in Adam, but now I'm in Christ. And so the question, should we walk in sin? And so uh, it's kind of an easy, you know, low hanging curveball to hit the, this one out of the park. And really what he develops in chapter six isn't just an answer to that question, but it is an interesting kind of appetizer to lead off into his argument about the fact of our death and its consequent freedom. In verses one through four of Romans six, you have the benefit of death introduced, the benefit of death. And this is, this is going to be a strange thought. Usually when we think of death, it's not a good thing. In fact, were we at the crucifixion scene with Jesus on the cross between the two thieves and we were on the ground looking up at him, we would think this is not good at all. We, like his disciples and his mother present, we would say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history because the only sinlessly perfect human being ever born is now dying in a, in a horribly humiliating way, a, tr- a torturous way, and a torture covered by darkness as God judged him for our sins, we can't even imagine. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, a thousand years before written by David, fulfilled by Jesus suffering on the cross, calling out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we would say this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And even in that death, we'd say it's horrible. In fact, in Matthew 16, when Jesus said, okay, the son of man must die and then be raised. And Peter takes him aside after being the rock and says, you're the living God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then says, and the Christ must die for your sins. And then Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him with language you'd use for a little child. Says he rebuked him like you correct a child, like you grabbed him by his shoulders and not a hard shake, but a little firm Jesus. You will never do this. You will never die. You must not die for our sins. Or however he said, you're not going to be crucified. And Peter says what to, Jesus says what to Peter? He called him little rock. Get thee behind me, Satan. Now he calls him Satan. Boy, that is a switch. Peter blows hot and cold, doesn't he? He's the little rock. I chip off the old block and now he's Satan. Uh, And he isn't Satan, but Jesus calls him that because the opposition to the gospel work that Christ must do for us is the agenda of God's enemy. And he failed. Jesus succeeded at the cross and vanquished uh, Satan. And he is a defeated foe now. But, but just think about it. Um, this, is the, the, this is Peter who says you must never die. Even those who should know best that the Messiah must die, they didn't understand. At that point, not in Matthew 6, they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't understand the death of Messiah yet. 
And so it's always a bad thing. Lazarus at the tomb, uh, Lord, uh, he stinketh, you know, he's been in there for four days, and so um, we don't want to go in there. It's bad. If you had been here, you could have saved him, but he's dead, and it's sad, and Jesus wept. And Jesus raised him from the dead, and that's why we love it so much, because Lazarus was raised from the dead. But I've got, unfortunately, bad news for you. Um, Lazarus later died because he wasn't resurrected. He was resuscitated. His body systems were, were healed, but he didn't get a resurrection body. He wasn't given an immortal body that can't be corrupted or die, as Jesus has now, as you will have. Death is always a bad thing, but in Romans 6, death is the best news because it's freedom. Because in Romans 6, the death that you've died in Christ by being in him as he went to the cross, that you are positionally united to Jesus by the baptism of the Spirit, that's this doctrine of positional truth. The application of this doctrine is that you are free from the power of sin, which once dominated your life. You are free. And the rationale through this, as we'll work through it, is not that you can hope to be free. It's not that if you practice freedom, you can, you know, eventually aspire to being free. It says you are free, so reckon yourself to be free. And it's so powerful, but it's a rationale. It's a thought process. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? The death may increase. May it never be. That's meganoita. May it never be that you would think that foolish thought. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? See how he introduces death? We've died to sin. I was born in Adam, but somehow through my union with Christ, I have died. And then I've been raised in Christ. And that's called positional truth. It's a big deal. And it's the rationale that you're being taught to presuppose. You have died to sin. Beloved, did you know? That we, by faith in Christ and the work of God, and it's all his grace, we have died to sin. This is one of the great riches of divine grace. You have died in Christ to your sin nature. It's fantastic because of the freedom that that produces. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? See, I want to talk about his resurrection I want to talk about his glorification, resurrection body, the life that we have that's eternal life, to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom we've sent, that's eternal life. Here we're talking about the benefits of death. They're related. And the death we've died isn't something we personally experience. It's something that's been applied to us. But Paul says that you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. That's union with Christ in his death. So what good is that to me? Well, the whole of Romans 6 tells you it's good because it broke the power of sin in your life. And you don't have to obey what you before you had no choice but obey. Therefore, the explanation, verse 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the picture, is that your union with Christ established by God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one in Genesis 1-2 hovering over the surface of the deep. He has unified you 
Actually, Christ has unified you with himself through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you belong to God, and you're in Christ, and that position goes back to his death for you, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension in glory, and this is your union, your position. So let's talk about that death at the cross, what it accomplished in the sense of your union with Christ. You have died with Christ, so that as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, that language of we too might walk in newness of life introduces a little bit of uncertainty. Notice in verse 4, my, my English Bible says, we too might walk in newness of life. What does your 1611 say, Jerry? We might, verse 4, we might walk. Does it say might walk? Even so, we also should walk. We should walk. See, there, that's uncertainty. Both of these are translating a, 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 a subjunctive in what Paul actually wrote. And when he actually wrote it, it's in Greek. It's a subjunctive mood. And that introduces some level of uncertainty. He doesn't say you will inevitably walk. He says that you should. That's one modal use of the subjunctive. You might. That's potential. I would say it's expressing purpose so that you would. So that you would walk in newness of life. And I learned from my Greek scholars that taught me to, to think this way about a lot of Paul's subjunctive moods. It's the purpose from the previous clause. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That there is inherently an expectation, a potential, an ought, but it isn't presented as an inevitable. And this is your Christian spiritual life. You and I need to take what Paul's telling us about our position and live it out in our experience. And that is called experiential sanctification. That is the Christian way of life. It is the walk by the Spirit. It is not quenching the Spirit. It is not grieving the Spirit. It is not walking in darkness. All of these words are describing the same thing of the Christian spiritual life that is lived out because of our inevitable position. Now let's talk about inevitable Inevitable, okay? Let's talk about the things that are certain and the things that aren't. You cannot do anything about the fact that the very moment you first trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were entered into union with Christ through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, identifying you with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. That is settled. The implication is that you then should, could, would walk in new life. The walk is a thing that you're actually doing. It isn't an inevitable reality in the language of Romans 6. And by the way, you can be a carnal believer in 1 Corinthians 2. You can walk as mere men or after the flesh. You can, as he'll say in Romans 6, still submit to your sin nature. You're not supposed to. You're positionally not in your sin, but you can go back to it. And that's insane because you've died. That's a dead, that's a, that's a foe that you're separated from in terms of its power. And so that's what we're doing is we're talking now about the experiential Christian life that you're walking in this new life that God has established for you. And it's like, you can drive the handmade sports car to work or not. You could try to go walk barefoot on a 120 degree asphalt, or you can get in this nice sports car and drive to work. You can choose not to drive to work, but that would be foolish. I'm trying to use as many automobile illustrations as I can lately, since that is a, a, a 
an, a factor of our lives that gives us so much freedom, and it's, it's so much of our quality of life depends on the autonomy we have with the automobile, and there's a big agenda to, for that to go away. We're going to try to get rid of millions of cars off the road, they say, and get to public transportation. So I, I'm going to keep talking about cars just as a little aside to get everybody back on track here. Um, the <laughs> you could drive this handmade sports car to work, or you could walk across uh, broken glass, your choice. And it is a choice, but I think it's kind of obvious which one I should make. And that's what Paul is serving up in terms of the rationale in Romans 6. And we're going to say many things, and we're going to try to exhaust all that we can out of Romans 6 today. We'll barely scratch the surface. So let's get to scratching. In verses 5 through 7, death and slavery are the topic. The concept of death to sin and what that means about my former slavery to sin. Explanation, for if we have become united with Jesus Christ... That's with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So this is a statement about our position in Christ, but it also hints at our inevitable destiny. Not only we're told, do we have this position that I'm in Christ, I'm already resurrected, but there's the guarantee that I actually will be experientially resurrected and glorified and exalted. I'll be in a body like Christ's body in resurrection, and this is our destiny. We're studying that, by the way, on our uh, Wednesday night walk through Isaiah. We're taking a little break and looking at the doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament, and we're having a ball with that. And, um, but, but this is saying that you now are to be in the likeness of his resurrection since you have become united with him in the likeness of his death. And you need to do this because you know, because you know in verse 6, that our old anthropos, my Bible translates that as self, but the word anthropos means man in the sense of a human being. And so our old human, our old man, there's another word for man that's specifically male. Anthropos is a masculine noun, but it's the word used for mankind. So understand we're saying that our old person, our old self is what they've translated here. was crucified with Christ. That's what positional truth gets you. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The baptism of the Spirit is not something that only a few people in the second century called Montanists experienced. And then in 1901, in the Azusa Street revival, so-called, that they started having it again, and that's the baptism of the Spirit. And then all the Christians for 2,000 years, except for those people, never got the baptism of the Spirit. But that was a big teaching in, in America uh, in the last 100 years, that the charismatic, uh, so-called charismatic gifts or signs are the baptism of the Spirit. And, and some said in the charismatic movement, if you weren't a tongue speaker, you didn't get the baptism, and then you weren't really saved. And others said, no, 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 that's, no, no, brother, that's too, that's too, that's, you can't get that out of the Bible, which you can't. So then they said, no, it's a second blessing. You might, might have gotten the first blessing of your salvation, but the second blessing of the Spirit is that you get the baptism. And then they've got this two-step thing where you don't really have the higher spiritual life until you've got the baptism, and the baptism of the Spirit they teach is tongue speaking. But it isn't biblical tongue speaking. It's non-linguistic tongue speaking. It's gibberish like animistic religions have in their uh, trances. And it's not what the Bible's teaching, I would contend. And I, I, and I love you, and that's why I tell you that as strongly as I do. I can go much more powerfully about this. I can be much more um, forceful 
in this and pejorative about it, but I'd rather just keep it to the Bible. What the Bible teaches in the languages gift was foreign languages that you didn't know that you could speak and glorify God in. And the other person that didn't know the language could translate, could interpret that language you were speaking. The thing that's happening above, that is not what we find in the text on, on this first century gift to, to validate that the Holy Spirit had come. And in a form, understand, in a way, this international work of the church is undoing some of the separation of Babel that we're now, we're now uh, able to understand. And, and Christ is building his church from all the nations is the, is the message. But anyway, uh, that's part of the message. The, the point I'm making is that that's not the baptism of the Spirit. The gift of tongues in Acts 2 is not called the baptism of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit isn't wet, and it isn't even a feeling. It, it is never anywhere said to be a feeling. It's a reality that you have to get from what God says, and then you have to believe it. And here's what happens. If it's true, and I don't believe it, then I'm divorced from reality. If it's true, and I do believe it, then I'm, I'm in line with reality. And that's what we're doing in Romans 6. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. Anybody feel any nail prints? Anybody feel whatever it feels like to be the sinless son of God who is then judged for the sins of the world? No one knows what that experience is. It's not experiential, but it is nevertheless your position. So you have been crucified with Christ. And that is wonderful news because it means death. Our old self was crucified with him in order so that for the purpose of that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The idea here is that in my sin, sinful, from Adam, in my original nature as I was, I was enslaved to an authority over me called my sinful nature. And now, because of the crucifixion I've, in, in, I've, I've been united with in Christ, it is no longer empowered over me because there's been that death. So in Christ, I've died to that. Here we go. If I've died to sin, if you're telling me that it's dead, then obviously I can't sin anymore. But that's not what it means. It means that its power is broken, and I don't, listen to it, have to. In verses 5 through 7, I don't have to because it's a vanquished enemy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an authority that once had shackles, and now the shackles are broken. But as we keep going, he's going to say, and you have to not. I don't have to sin. And as I reckon that I'm dead in Christ to my sin, I'm supposed to not sin as I walk with him in new life because he's my model. And so when you get to chapter 7, you're still struggling against your sin nature. Galatians chapter 5, the sin nature is opposed to the spirit, the flesh, and the spirit are opposed. You can't do what you feel like doing or what you please. If you're going to walk with God, you can't satisfy what your feelings of your flesh and your, your sinful urges are, and you have to say no, and by the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, right? We're in this struggle. Paul is telling you, but telling that your position is great motivation in the fight, that you can reckon yourself dead to these sinful urges. I don't have to obey that. I don't have to. And we're not just taking away a negative, we're replacing with a positive. I'm in Christ and I'm walking with him. That's the idea that we are now living our lives, as, as Paul will say, to God. But the death to slavery in verse 6 is the death of the cross. And verse 7 is the freedom. And this is the great news about death. For he 
who has died is free from sin. Hallelujah. That's a great encouragement that I have died in Christ to the power of sin over me. I don't have to. Let's that sink in a little bit. I don't have to. But I feel like it. Well, you, you do. I feel urges. I feel urges. You know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody knows when I'm talking about urges. We feel urges. Like, I want to say something I shouldn't say right now. I want to gossip about something. Get these urges. You know, the church sins. I'm not supposed to cause ascension and factions, but do you know what she said? Yeah, everything's going well in the church except for this one thing that's going to tear it apart as we run our mouths and slander and malign. Not a problem here, so I can talk about it, right? It's common. It's very common. Church splits happen. A lot of times, well, there's always some sin problem, and a lot of times sin is, is uh, sort of spread around. But I feel like disobedience of God. I feel like saying no to duly constituted authority. I, I, I mean, God says, obey your parents, Genesis, or, uh, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And my dad said, don't push that button. But I got to push the button. I didn't have to push the button before, but when my dad said, don't push the button, now I, I got to push the button. And I can't help it because I just feel like, it. you know, in Christ, you, you, you don't have to. In Christ, you don't have to do the thing you're told not to do just because you feel like it. In fact, part of God's agenda with your life is that you get new feelings, that you go in a different direction, that you're now dead to sin and a living your life to God in Christ. So you're no longer slaves to sin. And it doesn't mean that it's no longer present and a challenge. And those of you that think, no, no, it's, I'm pretty good. That you're in the worst risk because you're not aware of how sin is challenging you. Self-righteousness is this invisible sin that, well, I don't have any sins. Well, the self-righteousness that's an arrogance that makes you think you're better than other people is the glaring thing that everyone's always telling you about if they love you, if, they, if they're in your life enough to tell you, you got a problem with this. Of course, we'll never say that to each other, but, um, but sometimes maybe we should. What we're saying is that you don't have to in verses 1 through 7. In verse 8, we have Christ both our identity because whether you know it or not, you're in Christ as a believer. He's teaching you this and helping you think it through, but it's true whether you know it or not. It's your identity. Christ is your identity. But then because I know this, he becomes my model. I'm looking at him and I'm living my life the way he lived. And that's verses eight through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so what just happened was Paul set up Christ as our model, as our vision. Be thou my vision. Let me think of him. Occupation with Jesus Christ and what he is about. And there is no sin in Christ. There is no uh, corruption. There is no capitulation. There is only living his life to the glory of his father. And that's the life that we've been born into. And that's the life that's been secured by the death to sin on the cross. So Christ becomes our identity and model in verses eight through 10. And so now we really need to preach, therefore choose. These are the existential realities in verses one through 10. 
Verses 11 through 14 is how then shall we live? These are the choices that we must make. Now, I didn't say inevitably you will make it. I said you're inevitably responsible to make them. This is the Christian spiritual life. Think this truth and then act accordingly. I've died to the power of my sin nature, so I don't have to give in to it, but I've got bad habits. That's right. You have habits and you can break those habits and God can deliver you from bad habits. And bad habits generally, if they're bad, it's, it's a sinful problem. And you have various, uh, various interactions associated with your bad habits. Some of the bad habits involve, for example, chemical dependency. So it becomes a physical component and it's not just a spiritual disregard of God. And, and uh, 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 Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. You do that enough and you become dependent. You get a physical dependency on this and then that's not just the spiritual thing, it's the physical component as well. And so I'm not saying that it isn't complicated. I'm saying that the truth, the truth about your freedom and how you should choose is very simple. The truth is simple. The way you apply it in your life, well, that's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment walk. But notice that Paul's pattern is to teach you the doctrine and then expect you to live it. He teaches you the doctrine, and then he says, these are the decisions you need to make. We haven't heard a command one Yet. And verse 11 will launch into the commands. I believe that the commands of Scripture are given to us because God loves us. The commands of Scripture are given to us because God wants the highest and greatest and best. Can anybody give me a demonstration, a simple demonstration from the first thing you ever learned about God of how I know that God wants the highest and the greatest and best for you? What is my demonstration? The first thing you ever knew about God was that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The first thing you ever learned about God was that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only path to knowing God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God did that for you. So how can I say God wants the highest and best for you? He sent his son, which is the highest and best. You already have the greatest and highest. So this satanic notion that God is a meanie and he said only husband and wife for the act of marriage. And and marriage is only a man and a woman. Well, he's being mean and holding us back from what we feel like. No, he is loving you and providing you the path of actual enjoyment of him in life. God's prohibitions are his love for you. God's affirmative commands are his love for you. And so we have commands in 11 through 14 based on the doctrine that he just taught us of our position in Christ and death to sin. Therefore, choose in verse 11, he says, even so on the basis of what we just said about your position in Christ, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the command of Romans 6, 11? It might be the most important command in the passage. The command he issues, the red letter, double underlined word is consider. Your Bible might say reckon. I reckon that's a good translation too. Reckon. It's a mental process. It's cognitive. It doesn't say inevitably feel this way. It says think it. Well, I can't think it. I I don't have control over my brain like that. Yeah, you do. He tells you to do it. You know, you can also choose to rejoice because he commands it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4. Consider this to be true. Well, well, consider what? That I've died to sin. It's dead. It has no authority over me. Yeah, but it sure does tempt me. Yeah, but it doesn't have any power to make you choose. 
You've got this power to choose against that now because you're free in Christ and you're actually, we'll read, enslaved to him. It's good news about this slavery in chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to burn that into your soul. That's your memory verse. That's the one. Consider yourselves, double underline, red letters. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is your new life. So what about the sinful patterns? What about the things that I feel like doing that I'm not supposed to do? You're dead to that. You, going back to it is, is kind of a zombie move. Because you've been crucified with Christ and now you're alive in resurrection with him to live your life to God. And that's the model to think about your life. That's how you think about the life we live. Teaching the kids about the sin nature is very important. But teaching them about the sin nature must include that it's a vanquished enemy. You don't have to obey it. And in fact, in verse 11, you're supposed to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we continue with the commands in verse 12, based on your thought process in verse 11, now we have some more uh, instruction. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. What's the command? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It's a third person imperative, which Greek can do and English can't. So we say you do not let, but it's actually says sin is not to reign in your mortal body. You're responsible for that. You're, you're the gatekeeper on this. You're like, well, God's the spirit in me. Yeah. God, the Holy Spirit working through you puts you in the position of responsibility to say, no, sin will not rule in my body. What is sin? What are the sins? Galatians chapter five, Romans chapter one, 18 through 32. We have plenty of descriptions of what sins are. These are all the product of our sinful nature. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think in Romans chapter 12. One of my favorites to mention in context about your spiritual gift, but generally that sense of pride and arrogance. I don't have to. In fact, I'm supposed to not. It's not supposed to rule in me. Thinking that it's all about me because it is, after all, about me. That's sin. That is the incurvature, as some theologians have called the incurvature of the soul, that your sin puts you in a mindset that it's all about you. But the gospel says it's all about God. I've died to sin and that incurvature on myself, and I'm living to God. Jealousy and envy, be free from these horrible tendencies that we have that we just let run rampant in our lives because we act as though Christ hasn't died, as he hasn't been raised, and that we're not in union with him. You don't have to be jealous or envious. Look to Christ, look to God and his plan for you, and recognize that there's nothing that you can need that you don't have because you have Christ. What other patterns of sin might we mention? Well, I have sexual lust problems might be the answer. I, I, I'm struggling with this, with this tendency. Jesus said, if you look at, at, with the wrong motivation on a person for, with a sexual a desire, that's, that's a sin like going, carrying it out, like fornication or adultery. That, it's a problem. I contend that sexual sin is Satan's primary avenue to attack the human race. Well, you're not a slave to this. You're not. You've got hormones, you've got eyes. That can be a very deadly combination when connected to a sinful nature. But let's disconnect the sinful nature. You don't have to. You don't have to look with that with your eyes. But I'm in a bad habit with mine. Well, you got to break those habits. Set conditions. Talk to God about it. Get some friends praying with you about this. You don't have to live in this slavery to this sin. 
You got to choose. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And that's the thing that's going on is your sin nature used to be in such control of you that it served up a motivation and you would carry it out. But now that chain is broken. It's still there. It's still radiating lust in your life, but you don't have to carry out that lust. That's where the sin actually takes place is when the lust goes into my action, my thought, my word, my deed that I shouldn't do. And so this is very much dealing with the negative side of the Christian spiritual life, dealing with your sin. Do not let it rain in verse 12. There's another prohibition in 13. Don't go on presenting, presenting good translation here. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That's a, ne- that's a prohibition. So sin doesn't reign. And I don't take my body parts, my members, and present them as it were. It's, 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 get this image in your mind of here, here I'm here for service. Use my hands how you see fit. Do not present your vessel to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't. Don't do that. My body is for God's use. It's not for uh, the disobedience of God. It's not for rebellion against him. What are the body parts that get us in the most trouble? They're above our neck. They're, 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 they're chin and above. Our eyes and our mouths are probably the most uh, tragic parts of our bodies to get us into the most trouble. Because the eyes, as you know, are a gate that, that draws all kinds of uh, temptation. And the mouth, well sometimes we just like to say things we shouldn't say. And, you know, one measure of maturity in James 3 is the ability to control the tongue. It doesn't mean you're perfect if you can restrain the tongue. It means you're mature. Don't give yourself a pass. Well, nobody's perfect, so i got to run my mouth. No, no, maturity in Christ is the ability to manage the tongue in James chapter 3. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, And then here's the affirmative. Those are two commands. Don't let it rain and don't present yourself. So those are two sides of the same coin. The king is waiting for his subjects to appear before him. No, that's not the reign I'm under. I don't have to do that. Rather, in fact, I'm commanded not to. 13b says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Present yourself, your whole self. Here I am, Lord, send me. Present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. So I haven't been resurrected physically yet, but in Christ, by baptism of the Spirit, I am resurrected. So I do present my baptized by the Spirit person to God as an instrument of righteousness. God, you use me as you see fit. Has everybody made that calculation? Have you thought that one through? This is such a vital and transformative decision that we really need to make every day. But it's such an important thought that some in the early 20th century, meaning well, said, well, that's the moment where you really get into the higher life when you finally get to absolute surrender or something, the Keswick movement went into this and, and they had a model of spirituality that said, um, you, you become a Christian and you're a believer as Paul's describing. But when you go through verse 13 in Romans six and you fully yield yourself to God, that's when you hit, you know, uh, that's when you hit the, um, the, uh, the nitrous bottle. That's when, that's when we really take off with spirituality. And so they had this two stage spiritual life business. And the truth is that if you're not submitting yourself to God, you're arrogant and walking in darkness. There is no spirituality. There's no Christian life day by day without submitting myself to God. 
And so we don't believe, we don't believe in the higher life teachings of the early 20th century, but we do believe that the walk by the spirit, which is the walk in the light, which is the walk in fellowship with God is yielded to God is God. You have your way. My life is yours. And beloved, if you've never made that thought process real in your life, you've never said, God, help me actually live my life to please you. That is the beginning of something new in your life, but it's just the spiritual life. You, you need to do this today if you haven't done it. And you need to do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And there will be never a day in your life when you don't say, I need to show up for duty and present myself to God for his service. My illustration I like to make, those of you who've been with me for a while know, that I think that the formation the military does, at least we did in the army, the military formation is a great picture of this presenting yourself. You've got the enemy commander, okay, your sin nature. And he says, okay, everybody form up. And you and I, idiots that we are at times, will say, oh, good, I can go serve that. And we go over to that formation and we stand at attention and we salute and we say, we're here for duty, use me how you want. And that is a horrible mistake because that enemy is working at, at opposite objectives to your creator and to your own soul and to your own benefit and to your good. But it feels good to do the things God said not to do. It's a temporary enjoyment for a long-term uh, uh, loss. And so, no, you don't present yourselves to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You go to the right formation. You go to the commander that you actually need to serve to God. And you present yourself and you show up for attention. You say, I am here in the right uniform with the right equipment at the right time to do your will. I'm here to serve you. And that is the abiding attitude that, that characterizes the Christian life. It is called humility. It is saying God is God and I am not. It is the Christian way of life to say, I am presenting myself to you, O God. Now, some of you have heard this sermon from me more than 10 or 15 or 20 times. And then they have others that actually live in my household. They've heard this sermon more times than that. I've done this with y'all many, many times. It really does bear repeating. The default setting of the Christian life is, God, use me how you see fit. I am yours for your purpose. Present yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And the documentation is Romans six thirteen. As those alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God, everything I am, God, is for you. My instruments, my members, my body, and everything about me is for you. Now, it says your members as instruments of righteousness. Does that mean your checkbook? Does that mean your bank account? Does that mean your, your work or your skills or your talents? It says your body parts. So we're off the hook on everything else as long as my body parts belong to God. Well, the, re the rationale for that, as I understand it, is that there is nothing more physically valuable that you can point to in your life than your actual physical body. If it's true that your body parts belong to God, then uh, everything does. It's all of you. Find the thing, beloved, do this thought process. Find the thing that is like not really his. That's mine, and I'm kind of keeping that for me. Do an inventory of your life. Where in your life is it not about him? You got a problem. That's, there's your problem. One of my sons has a very powerful sense of smell. <clears throat> and what I will do at times is if there's something like if, if there's a, you know, if there's a, a, a like. <laughs> We've had occasion to deal with, with the, the mice that like to get into the, um, the air handler in your car. 
And so I'll be like, uh, hey, go, go see if that's, see if you smell mouse down there. And, um, and he'll, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's bad, that's bad. <laughs> Almost to the point, like how long? How long can you do you think? No, that's at least, that's uh, probably three days, maybe, maybe four days. <laughs> There's a sensitivity. <sighs> my whole person, all of my faculties really need to be about him. And when we don't do that with everything, there's something festering. There's something smelling. Just think of that. You can try to imagine which kid it is. Don't raise your hand. Who, who is kind of the, the sensor. Go, hey, go over there. See if there's a dead mouse over that way. <laughs> No, I don't smell anything. Okay, good. <laughs> what in your life is that dead mouse behind the wall? What's festering and spoiling your life? Because like Aachen, like Aiken, you're holding back and you're pretending like something of the spoils of this life belongs to you and isn't for him. You're, you're marked out for him and anything you're holding back is just a poison to you. And I say that again because I love you, because I want you to succeed, because really because we love God and we want him to be glorified. In verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you for you're not under law but grace. What? You're not under the law but under grace. The law shows you that you're chained to sin and you need a savior to break those chains. That's grace. And you're on this side of that equation. You've been freed by the work of Christ. So that doctrine, hope you can see Romans 6 shows you how doctrine is to be thought through in order to be applied. And I could start off the message and say, y'all stop all that sinning. Stop gossiping. Stop having sexual desires that you're not carrying out physically, but you're thinking about it. Stop doing sexual sins that you are doing. See, I, I could go through and just give you a list of things not to do, but that's not how the Apostle Paul approaches it. That's legalism to just start give you a list of rules and not give you a rationale. You're God's image bearer. You're supposed to think. So we give you doctrine. So Paul tells you you're in Christ and you're alive from the dead because of the resurrection and the crucifixion. You, you've died with Christ and you're dead to sin. So think that way about your life when sin asks you, wouldn't you like to disobey God for a little bit? Wouldn't you like to take a little break from your spiritual life or your walk by the Spirit? Wouldn't it be good for you in this moment to just kind of take a break? Lord, I'll be back. Eternal security and all. It's going to be okay. In a former uh, iteration, call that pre-bounding. Ask me about that later. In verses 15 through 19, you have the rationale of freedom. We've been through this rationale of death and how you should live. So now let's go through the rationale of freedom. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? He's asking that same question in a way again, but it's based on that you're not under law but grace. So shall, shall we sin uh, and disobey the law? Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Don't you know that you're going to serve someone? Don't you know that by obeying your sinful nature, you're re-enslaving yourself to that old commander? But here's the thing. It's a zombie move because it's dead. It has no authority over you, but you're still, you're, hey, wake up. Come, come have authority over me. Now, I know it's active, and I know it's calling to you, and I know it tempts you, but that's not what we mean by death. I mean its power is broken to, to, call, to, to require you to disobey God. Paul then worships a little bit. He says in verse 17, 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed. What form of teaching? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You have received the life by trusting in Jesus. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is the rationale of freedom, is that you were enslaved to sin and now you're enslaved to righteousness. You are free now to serve God where before you were only free to serve your sinful lusts. You were not free without Christ to serve him. And now you are. Now notice I said freedom here is slavery. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. If I'm an employee, then the person that's cutting the checks has expectations of me, and he lays them on me, and and that's the arrangement. I want to work. I don't want to get paid, and so here's the job. And what we call the, the things that the boss tells me to do, we could call those, let's categorize them as duties. These are the duties. Now, my integrity is on the line, not just my paycheck, but my integrity because I have taken this on and said, I will do this duty. That's an employer-employee thing in America. Back in this day, the majority population probably of Christians probably were were Roman slaves. Roman slavery was an institution that was um, in some ways like American chattel slavery in many ways not like it at all. But it would be like the lowest level of economics where you are uh, uh, the, you know, a day laborer type person. Or, and, and that's in many cases, but in other agricultural, in other cases, doctors, lawyers, uh, teachers were also slaves. That Roman slavery is a very interesting institution, but it's basically the, the, the bottom income stratum of the, of the people. And so think of it as management and labor, if you will. When you have a duty that is actually binding on you, whether you committed to it or it was committed to you and you, it's binding on you. When it's your duty, you and I need to become people of conscience about that. It's a wonderful thing to know what your job is. Duty organizes your life. The commands of Scripture establish duties that then we know what we're supposed to be about. Now, we don't fulfill God's commands in the power of the flesh. We don't, we're not legalists right? We do our duties that God gives us in the grace that he's provided, but it still is part of my conscience. This is what God expects of me. How does God expect you to treat one another, for example? Well, the one another stuff, loving one another, concerning for one another, uh, putting on a heart of compassion, Colossians 3.12. He expects this, and when you know that, it becomes a duty, and that really helps you. This is what's going on in chapter uh, 6 here. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am duty-bound to walk in the light. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, believers, y'all can choose if you want to be filled by the Spirit. He says, believers, you are inevitably responsible where it's a sin otherwise. If you don't, you're commanded to walk by the Spirit. That's how commands work. It puts inevitable duties on us, and it's the love of God for us to organize us that way. The rationale of freedom is that you are now enslaved to righteousness and therefore free to serve God. In verses 20 through 23, as we close, and I promise we will, in verses 20 through 23, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That was the arrangement. 
You didn't have to obey righteousness because you're enslaved to sin. But positionally in Christ, you're now enslaved to righteousness. So verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Being slaved to sin, a slave of sin means the inevitable outcome is death. And that's where he's headed with the wages of sin. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. That's being set apart to God and walking with him in, in, this, in the light and his righteousness. And the telos, the end of all of it is eternal life. And that doesn't mean that you're gaining eternal life by walking. It means that you're enjoying eternal life, the walk with God and knowing him on his terms. That, uh, the way that's translated in the New American Standard can be taken that um, the outcome of your, your growth in the Lord is that you eventually gain eternal life. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that the end result of all things is that you are enjoying this eternal life. And it's a great summary of what we're describing. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, you have that now because you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because you are enslaved to righteousness. Because you are, you've been bought with a price. Talking about redemption. This is the reality of your Christian spiritual life. And it explains so much about what we're dealing with. I know that you are going to suffer the temptations and lusts of your sinful nature. But you and I both know, based on what Paul said, that we don't have to give in to them because of our union with Christ. The last thing I'll say is that it's very important to distinguish between taking away a negative and replacing it with a positive. Just telling you don't sin because you're freed from sin is not what Paul does. He says, present yourself to God. Not restrain yourself from sin. Present yourself to God. My hands are busy. My eyes belong to Christ. My, my brain, my soul, my person is his. I don't have time to go serve the old master. That's the, that's the idea. You're not going to be victorious about sin if you're just trying to not sin. The victory that we have is recognizing I got work to do and I belong to my Savior. That is the life that you've been given by virtue of Christ. And the application is obvious. Father, we are grateful and praise you for this eternal life, which we've studied about. We've studied how Paul talks about it. We've seen how he commands us. What is left for us is to say, I believe these things and I choose these things. And not just now, but always. Father, it is our prayer for anyone in the hearing of our voice anyone in our lives that doesn't know Jesus Christ, we pray for their eternal life, for their eternal salvation, for them to understand the words of life, that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And thank you that your word is clear. We can personalize this and not just generally say Christ died for sinners. He died for the sins of the world. He died for all of our sins, and he alone is the only substitute, the only sacrifice. And what we must do with him is trust in him and his work. We thank you for this so great salvation. Again, pray for our families and friends, those around us that may not know or understand. Make this real to them. Help them understand and send a preacher, as Paul says in Romans 10, that they could hear clearly the gospel. Father, you have to do the prior work. You have to work it in them. You have to make it clear to them. It is all of your grace. And so we beg it on behalf of our family and friends and pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.
Well, beloved, our closing hymn this morning, if you'd all take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn number 458, 458, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated. Let's all stand together, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, time, the freedom that we have to come here today, partake of this uh, spiritual meal, and as we uh, look into the ingredients of how a meal nourishes us, this nourishes our soul, gives us the opportunity to apply it, uh, we recognize that we are redeemed, and as such, we muster to you, and as we exit these doors and go out into the world, we uh, look to do your will and glorify you. We pray these things in Christ our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. Amen.